you join me this morning in prayer? Glory, honor, praise, all belong to you, O God. We ask that you would enable and empower us to worship you properly and passionately. Thank you for the privilege that we enjoy in prayer. May we intercede in wisdom and according to your purposes. Father, in this room there is a vast array of cares and concerns and needs. Some are physical, others are spiritual. We ask that you would help us to view them all through a divine lens. May we desire and expect to see your hands at work in each and every situation. Lord, we've begun a new year according to the calendar. For many, it's a time to renew, to reboot, to recommit. We ask that you give us direction for establishing new steps and practices in our lives. Enable us to recognize habits that hinder our walk with you. Make us desperate and courageous to change for your glory. Make us to see how displaying your glory is for our good. You've been so kind and generous and good to our church. We pray that we might know your benevolent blessing in this coming year. May we see your blessings as a pathway to being more faithful. Make us effective followers through which others see you in us. Make us fruitful gospel witnesses through which others turn to you. Lord, add to our numbers, not for prideful purposes, but to make us a powerful and glorious city on a hill shining forth with your greatness and your wonder for all to see. Lord, make us distinct from this broken world. Not that we might be self-righteous, but that we might evidence your incredible worth and value. Lord, make us salt and light for this desperately chaotic and fickle world. Bind us together in love and grace and kindness and encouragement for one another. May it be true of this church family that the world will see our love for one another and recognize that we belong to you. Now give us ears to listen, minds that understand, hearts that are eager to obey. We pray that you'd make it so through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Psalm 81 has one of the uh, great statements in all of Scripture included in it. In verse 10, and we'll get to that later, but before we jump in, it's important for you to understand how important context is when you're trying to understand Scripture, when you're seeking to interpret what God is saying. It's important for us to know and understand what God was saying when He said what He said, and then understand how that applies to us in our present context. Why was this psalm written? Why is it included in the canon of Scripture? How is it important for us? And what is its message for us today? Those are questions 
that should inform our study of this psalm or any text in Scripture. I was thinking as I looked at and studied this Scripture this week about how families operate, thinking about my own family, for instance, and how uh, I'm not just our immediate family, but extended family, parents and siblings and cousins and all of those people. We always have, we just come through this season where we thrive on getting everyone together. We get together because it's what we do. We do it because it is pleasing. It is encouraging to us. And sometimes it, it kind of morphs into becoming more tedious and difficult than maybe it is a blessing. All of us are guilty of that, and sometimes we have to reboot the circumstances. We have to think back to why we gather, what our purpose is in gathering. God established feasts and festivals for His people, for Israel. And they apply down through the ages to all of His people, including us today. He established these things so that His people might remember all His provision, all of His works in their lives, and that they might be drawn together to renew and rekindle and reboot their worship for Him in spirit and in truth. This is what we are thinking about in this psalm this morning. It was written because the people of God, in the light of these festivals and feasts, were growing apathetic. They were becoming indifferent toward them. It wasn't thrilling for them, the the thought, the concept of coming together for this purpose that God had prescribed. And so they, they became a little bit complacent. And this psalm is about calling them, an impassioned call by God for His people to remember and to worship Him as He has decreed. And obviously that brings a great message and challenge for us because the same problems that they had are problems that we have today. So I want you to look this morning. The first five verses make up the first section that we're going to talk about. And I would say that that, there God is calling His people to worship. Verses 1 through 5, God is calling His people to worship. Verses 6 through 16, He's telling us that He blesses His people when they believe on Him and obey Him. When they take Him at His word and believe, when they follow Him obediently and faithfully, God is always a God who blesses His people. So let's back up to verses 1 through 5 and think about what God is saying here in this section. First, he tells us what he expects from his people. There are five imperatives in these first three verses. Five imperatives. Those are commands. They're not optional. They're not optional. You realize that we human beings are designed, we are made for worship. You are going to worship. No matter what you may think, No matter how hard you try, you are built for worship. I believe that you're going to worship one of three things, basically, and these are broad categories. You're going to worship yourself, you're going to worship stuff, or you're going to worship the Savior. One of those three, self, stuff, or the Savior. He says in this passage this morning that we are to sing aloud. That's the first imperative that he gives us. Sing aloud. 
You think about singing aloud, obviously the inference here is to be audible with what you're doing. Not silent, not just thinking about it, but speaking it out. Doing so with animation, with strength. When I read this, I think immediately about sports fans. How many of you are sports fans? It's okay, you can admit it. Most every one of us are a fan of something. Something that really gets your motor going, right? Tomorrow night, there's a big game, I hear. And there's going to be a lot of yelling and screaming and painting the faces and uninhibited expression of emotion that's going to grip people. You watch. As the camera pans in the stands, you're going to see people who are genuinely fanatics. Okay? They lose all sense of mind control and body control. Some of you may join in with them. That's what being a fan is, is it means being a fanatic. It means being all in. I think about uh, fans. I've seen a couple of strange things when I've attended sporting events. I remember attending one game in particular, and there was a lady sitting near where I was, and she was miserable. She was miserable. She wanted the people in front of her to stay seated. And when the noise grew and became so hard on the ears, she would just cover her ears and sit with her head down. And I thought, she's in the wrong place for the wrong function, right? You wouldn't expect that out of a fan at a game. In fact, that's odd. That's abnormal. I saw someone at a game once upon a time reading a book as if they were at the library. Out of place, completely out of place. Well, what God is telling us is that worship has certain characteristics. There are certain energies. There are certain things that characterize our gathering for worship. Singing aloud, singing robustly, singing audibly, expressing our worship and adoration for a holy God, being a fanatic, if you will, for Yahweh is part of that description. I took my uh, little brother years ago. I went to a bowl game where my school was playing, and it was a big game. We were playing one of those big high-profile football schools, and we were all excited about it. And it came down. I took my little brother. He was nine years old at the time, okay, nine years old. I thought, he's going to enjoy this. So we got tickets. A bunch of us went. I took him along. We're at the end of the game, the last minute of the game, and we're leading by eight points, and they score, and it's a, it's a two-point game, and they're lining up to go for a two-point conversion. The stadium is going bananas, jumping and yelling and shaking all kinds of stuff. You couldn't hear yourself think. A friend next to me elbowed me, pointed. I looked, and my little brother had the binoculars, and he was looking at the blimp. <laughs> Checking out the blimp in the sky, he wasn't paying a bit of attention to the game. Sometimes, this is the way we approach God in worship. He says that not only should we sing aloud, but we should shout for joy. Don't show up reluctantly. Don't show up begrudgingly. Don't show up mad or sad but show up with a thrill in the heart. It's always uh, been interesting to me to watch children enter the church. 
they usually go from one end of the spectrum to the other. They either come in crying their eyes out because they know they're getting ready to be separated from mama, or they come in and they almost knock the door down coming in, running down the hall, screaming and yelling and laughing and having a big time. Uh, there's a lesson in there for us, isn't there? One mother told me once upon a time that her son would literally start crying when they got to the entrance to the parking lot. Now, they usually pass through those phases, and they don't have worship as their motivation for coming in, but you get the idea that sometimes our motivation for showing up together can be questionable. Shout for joy. Bring a song or begin a song of praise. Be begin the celebration. Musical praise that is appropriate to the occasion. It is for Yahweh. The primary instrument for our worship are our voices. We lift our voices in praise and adoration to the Lord. I know we like to sit and listen. We want to absorb. But that's not characteristic of worship of Yahweh. Yahweh says we are to be involved. And that we are to use our voices. You'll notice lots of times James encourages us to sing even without the instruments. Just a few moments ago we did that. If you will... Listen as you're singing. It's such a beautiful thing when all the voices... I'm not talking about perfect melodies. I'm not talking about being in perfect pitch. I'm talking about a joyful noise made to the Lord that is pleasing to our Creator and our God. Begin. Let it start when we come together. It may be a little bit provocative and insensitive to say, but so many folks think that it's really about them, and it's not. It's extraordinary to me to hear some of the ways we talk about our gatherings. When we say things like, I like, I don't like, I think, I want. <laughs> those, are, those expressions are completely out of place in a worship of Yahweh. It's more important to know what God likes, what God wants, what God thinks. It's about His preferences. And He has told us in Scripture very clearly what those preferences are. And we seek to follow them here with every fiber of our being. We worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now with all this being said, it's important for you to understand that you cannot give God. When we show up prepared to worship and honor Him, to give to Him what is pleasing to Him, He always thrills the soul of the worshiper. It's just the way He works. He will not allow you to walk out empty. But if you come just looking to be filled, you're likely to be disappointed more than not. Strike the tambourine. I'm, I have to admit, I have problems with this. I'm not a tambourine kind of guy. But I did a little research and study on this, and really they make the case here that this is kind of a, a little drum. I didn't really think about it that way, but it's a little drum. It's a percuss percussion instrument. A percussion instrument. Sound the tambourine or the drum. Many believe drums are the oldest instrument other than the human voice known to man. 
When you travel into other countries, uh, for instance, I've spent time ministering in Africa, and I remember doing open-air evangelism, and we would pull up to just a, a stopping place, just get out of the van. There's no one around, just an open space. And some of the uh, folks there from Africa who were with us would pull out a drum and start beating the drum, and they would just come. They send messages through drums. But it's a, it's a call. It says, come see what's going on. It seems to be what the psalmist is saying here. It says something is happening. It provides rhythm and energy leading the people to worship. Then sound the trumpet or blow the shofar. This is a mighty blast announcing that worship is commencing. In other words, attention. God is on the throne. And we are gathering to worship Him. So he tells us what he expects. Then he tells us what, why he expects this. Verses 4 and 5. It is, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the Lord God of Jacob. It's because he commands it, or he has issued a statute. He's proclaimed it. Exodus 5, verses 1 through 3 say the following. Moses and Aaron, you know the story. Moses has been sent by God to Pharaoh to instruct him about God's desire for his people to be released from bondage, from captivity. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness, that they may worship me. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, worship our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence of the sword. In Exodus 8 and verse 1, the text says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Now you know the story. Nine plagues. Pharaoh's heart became harder by the minute, more resistant to the voice of God, to the command of God. Then the tenth plague changed everything. Following their emancipation, Exodus 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Verses 14 through 17. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. 24 through 28, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared us. And the people bowed their hearts and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
Through Israel's improbable deliverance, God reveals His value, His worth. He proves that He is sovereign over all things. He defeated all of the false gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, who considered himself to be the supreme God. God demonstrates all through His history with His people, He continues to show them how He provides for them and how He proves to them that He alone is worthy of praise. He sets it up as a statute. He proves it over and over and over. And when He calls His people in, He says, We are rehearsing what I've been doing for you, reminding you because you need to be reminded. We need to renew, reboot, recommit your worship and all in all of its vibrancy. Worship belongs to Him and only Him. God calls His people to worship. Then in verse 6 through 16, God tells us that He blesses His people as they believe Him and obey. As they believe Him and obey. These verses give us a framework for how God deals with His people. He is a covenant-prescribing, covenant-keeping God. A covenant-prescribing, covenant-keeping God. Verses 6 and 7 point to God delivering Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Why did He bother? Why did He bother? Why didn't He just leave them there? He could have chosen someone else and started over, someone more faithful. Was it simply because slavery is unjust? And make no mistake about it, slavery in any context is unjust. It's not just unjust here in America. It was unjust in South Africa. It's unjust in China. It's unjust wherever it exists. Afghanistan, Pakistan. Slavery has always been a problem because sin is a problem and slavery is at the heart of sin. It emulates what what Satan does to us through sin. Keeps us in bondage. Yes, That's a problem. Is that why God set them free? Because slavery is unjust. I would suggest that that's not what God was concerned about primarily. Notice I said primarily. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. This is after Joseph had died and another Pharaoh was on the throne of Egypt. Listen to the words written here. During those days, many days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God, listen, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. It doesn't say that God said, you know what? Bless those people, those poor people, those, those sorrowful people and the burdens that they're bearing. God said, no, I remember my covenant. They are my people, my chosen people. They belong to me, and they belong to me to do what I have decreed for them to do. They are my people to worship me, and they are not able to do that because of their bondage and their slavery. So he said, because of my promise, my covenant, I'm going to set them free. Now he references Sinai here, the secret place of thunder. 
God's covenant was not because Israel was treated unjustly or because Israel was special in any way. God's covenant, God's deliverance of Israel was because of His specialness, His uniqueness, His greatness, His glory. As I said earlier, you can't outgive God, so certainly the people of Israel benefit from being in relationship to God, do they not? He made a promise to Abraham and his descendants, and because God is unique and special and glorious and most high, He delivered Israel to fulfill His word and manifest His glory. He saved them that they might worship and glorify Him. Not for the benefit of themselves, but for His own glory's sake. His covenant is established in grace. God did this out of His own goodness, out of His own promise and commitment. But with that, at Sinai, at the secret place of thunderings, God gave them stipulations that go along with being His people. He said, it's not enough that you bear my name to be my people, but I'm going to give you a pattern, a blueprint for how my people are to live in this world. And so He gave them the law. He gave them the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, no carved images or likenesses, nothing that your heart will chase after in my place. He's a jealous God, jealous for His name, jealous for His people, jealous for His own glory. He says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Now, what's your first thought when you read that commandment? shall not cuss, right? You shall not curse. I don't doubt that profanity is offensive to God. Taking His name in that insensitive and horrible way is certainly offensive to God. But I don't think that's exactly what it means. I think it means to take on the identity of God and then live as though your affections are for the stuff and the things in this world. To take His name upon you in vain only to get what you get, rather than to be His people who reflect His glory and who honor Him in worship. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, covet. You shall honor your parents. You shall keep the Lord's day holy. Sabbath or Sunday? Saturday or Sunday? Does that mean we're to be legalists like the Pharisees? We shouldn't cook, pull weeds, or trim the shrubs on the day that belongs to the Lord. Well, you have to decide that. I know that it's become popular in our culture today for people to say, well, you know, pulling weeds is kind of recreational for me. <laughs> Craig, that's a lie, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not. That's just not. Please, just stop. Just stop saying, just stop telling yourself that. It's not true. You're doing something that you feel the need to do, and you're trying to justify doing it on the day that God has set apart. Listen, here's here's what's behind the Lord's day. He set apart one day out of each week when things are not to be business as usual. One day, no labor, no cares or concerns that you normally have Monday through Saturday. But instead, it's a day where we can put all those things aside and focus on Him. Focus on Him. Yes, there are cares and concerns that require our attention to support families, to take care of needs, to do work, 
all those kind of things. He says, get them done six days a week. And this day, I am doing this as a favor for you, because you can rest physically from your labor. And two, you can nourish your soul through worshiping me. Set it aside where you can reflect on me and my purposes and plans for your life and not the cares of this world. Redemption is not first and foremost about the people. It's first and foremost about God's great name. These stipulations and expectations are for living in relationship with God. They are not to gain God's approval, but because we have already been adopted by God into His family. He says, this is how you live up and honor my name before all people, so that you don't take my name in vain. He makes reference here to God's faithful provisions. In the wilderness, God provided for the people and their needs. He made bitter water into sweet, useful water. He gave manna from the heavens each night to feed them for 40 years. Thousands, maybe even a few million people. It's one of the most incredible testimonies of God's greatness that you will find anywhere. He's so good, He's so benevolent and generous and kind. He's always and forever faithful. Unchanging faithfulness describes God. Our faithfulness is fickle at best. It's fickle on our good days. But He never calls people and fails to give them what they need. It's good to see Rachel and Ben here with new baby Arwen today. It makes me think, well, when a young couple has a baby, they don't have a baby and then just drop it off somewhere. I know that happens in our culture, but even in a sinful world, we see the reproach in that, don't we? We expect they're going to take care. They're going to even sacrifice their own needs and concerns to care for that baby every way they can. My mom was telling a story not too long ago, and I've heard it before, but it's been a while, about when I was born. My dad was in the Army down in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and we lived in a tiny trailer. I can't tell you exactly how big it was, but it wasn't very big from all accounts. didn't affect me much, but it did them. But she talked about Dad's modest pay and how they had to make that go all month long. And that the last week of the month was always the most challenging because there was just so little money left and that they had to keep that so that they could buy milk for moi. Now that always strikes at my heart, right? Anytime you have any issues with your parents, they tell you something like that and you go, how great is that? But that's what parents do, right? is that they sacrifice. Now, we don't have to sacrifice very much in our, in our culture, our world today. Most of us have plenty. But God, God has all things and provides all things according to our need. And when we don't think we have enough or when we grumble or murmur about it, really we're questioning God's wisdom. We're questioning God's love. We're questioning God's ability to give for us and do for us as we need. God's love and commitment and provision is so much greater than we human beings know. He says, I am the Lord Yahweh, your God. I love this next line. Verse 10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. 
Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. It's such an encouraging and beautiful statement because it's a promise. Widen the space. Widen your mouth, your expectations. You think you've identified the needs in your life. God says, you don't know the half of what you need. Don't limit your needs to, now listen, this is not prosperity gospel. Don't limit your needs to just what you see and what you've appraised that your life needs. But trust that your heavenly Father gives over and beyond everything that you can envision that you need in your life. What does that look like? Makes me think about newly hatched birds in a nest. Have you ever seen any film work of something like that? You know, mama comes in with the food for the little birds, and when that shadow passes over the nest or she lands on the nest, what's the first thing that happens? Those mouths fly open just like this. I mean, the upper beak looks like it's laid flat against the back of the bird. They're not sniffing to see if they're going to like it like your kids do. They're not saying, well, what is it? Worms? Ooh. They trust mama to give them what they need. And they trust mama to fill the emptiness in their little bodies. They trust. God says, open your mouth wide. Expect me to fill all your needs. There's a physical promise here in this. I think you can make the case for a double meaning. God fills our mouths or meets our needs. You think about Israel in the wilderness as I alluded to earlier. They had to have water to drink. They had to have food to eat. And some of you have been through that southern part of Israel in the wilderness that they traveled and parts of Egypt down there. Listen, there's nothing there but a little dirt and mostly rocks. There's no trees. There's no vegetation. There's no streams to fish in. You may, you may be able to round up a, a lizard every now and then. You might find a, a bird with a broken wing every now and then. But you're hardly going to find enough food to feed thousands upon thousands of people every day for 40 years. And yet that's exactly what God did for His people. They grumbled. Oh, how humanity groans and murmurs against God. They did not always like what God provided. They grew tired of the manna and they said, we want some meat. They kept on until God said, okay, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. Not for a day, not for a couple of days, not for a week, but for a whole month until you grow sick of it, until it pours out of your nostrils. Oh, he didn't say that, did he? Yeah, he did. Numbers 11. Go home and read it this afternoon. They angered God with their complaining. It was symptomatic of distrusting God and being ungrateful. They were questioning why God had brought them out from Egypt to start with. Imagine that. They cried and groaned and murmured, wanting to be released from their burdens. And then when they got in the wilderness and weren't getting what they wanted, it didn't measure up to what they thought they deserved. They grumbled and complained and groaned and wanted to go back. 
They said to the garlics and leeks of Egypt, well, it makes it sound like they were given a feast every day, but they weren't. They were in bondage. God's provision is unbelievably glorious. Often we miss it because we're focused on grocery stores and vendors of other kinds that we think provide our needs. The second way of viewing this statement is in a worship context. I'm aware more each day of how incapable I am of properly worshiping God. It's just not within me. Everything in me leans toward worshiping self and stuff. And when I come to worship God, so often I'm at a loss for words. I'm just being honest with you, right? I don't have any problem worshiping self. I got plenty of words for self. I got plenty of words for stuff. But when it comes to God, sometimes we falter. And it's because of our sin nature. Yet, He is my Heavenly Father. He has made me a fellow heir with Christ. And I want to praise Him. I want to glorify Him. I want to honor Him. But I'm so inadequate, so unable to worship Him well. He says, open your mouth wide. I will fill it with praise. I will fill it with honor. How does that work? You see, I believe that Genuine worship begins at the throne of God, with God, and passes through us back to God. I don't think we conjure it up ourselves. And I think I can base that and defend that on the principle that we find in Romans 8.26, where God says, often we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit of God in us groans with groanings deeper than words can even understand to express what we need to God. How different is it for the Spirit of God to fill us with words to worship God? He equips our tongues, our minds, our hearts to worship Him. True worship begins with God, passes through our hearts, back to God. I think this is what Paul was essentially describing in Philippians 3.3 when he said, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. One writer described it this way. He said, It's the Holy Spirit who awakens in us an understanding of God's beauty and splendor and power. It's the Holy Spirit who stirs us to celebrate and rejoice and give thanks. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see and savor all that God is for us in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who, I hope and pray, orchestrates our services and leads us in corporate praise of God. Scripture says we worship the Spirit and in truth. Both the Spirit and the truth are from God and serve our worship. God instructs His people to listen and obey. His people experienced exile due to their disobedience, due to the fact that they had affection for other gods, impostors, stuff, things made by human hands, not the Creator and sovereign God Himself. God is jealous for His people and for His glory. He will not allow reproach to be brought on His name. He will discipline and correct for His name's sake. 
They didn't listen in the past, so God raised up enemies to take them into bondage. He gave them over to their stubborn hearts and allowed them to have what they wanted at various times, including quail meat, until they didn't want it anymore. God will not leave His people to their own devices and counsel. It is not our place to come up with ingenious plans, logical plans, personal preferences, to try to express and adorn God in worship or to make ourselves do better for God. Our calling is simply to listen and obey Him faithfully. When we do, look what He says will happen. I would soon subdue their enemies, He says, and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward Him, and their fate would last forever. Here's the best part. The best part of the whole psalm, and it's all good. But He would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. The finest of wheat, honey from the rock, Another double meaning here. God gives His best to His people. We may not think it's best, but it is best. Most mornings, most mornings, I eat a bowl of oatmeal. I know, that's pretty gross, right? Most of you will eat oatmeal, but you want to put all that sugar and cream and cinnamon and brown sugar and you know honey and anything else you can get in there. But, you know, I like it plain. I know, it's weird, right? It doesn't always taste as good as it would if you had honey or sugar or something, butter in it. But, the doctor will tell you that it's good for you. That it's a good thing for you to eat. God doesn't always give us what we want. But He gives us always what we need what we benefit from. He's always blessing us. He gives His best to His children. When we listen and obey, God says, I give you the finest of wheat. It's not just organic. It's divine. It's divine. And He gives us honey from the rock. Here's the double portion. The double meaning. Honey from the rock. What does this mean? Well, we know that rock is used in Scripture to talk about Christ. Honey from the rock. The rock. It's firm. It's strong. It's immovable. You ever tasted a rock? Probably every one of you in this room have. Because, you know, children do it all the time, don't they? They'll put them, they're always sampling everything. That's how they sort it out, right? But you taste a rock, and it tastes just like what you'd think a rock would, would taste like. It tastes just like something that looks like a rock should taste like. But imagine putting that rock in your mouth and having some of those, you know, brittle-covered pecans like you had at Christmas kind of melt in your mouth. And you go, hmm, that's really good. The rock is Christ who is immovable, our foundation, the foundation of our hope and grace in God. He's not changing. He's strong. 
but he's also sweet. Sweet to the taste. Sweet to the taste. I learned more about this last year than in my entire life put together. 2021 was so challenging on so many different ways for so many of us. I certainly had my share too. It was dark. It was painful at times. I can honestly say though to you today, and I said it in the midst of it because God was doing something phenomenal in my own heart and life, showing me that in the midst of the hardness and the difficulty the pain, the unknown, that He continued to bring His sweetness to bear upon my life each and every day. I can't explain it. It just didn't make any sense, except in the context of God's Word. He always gives us His best. Yes, it may be a difficult time. It may be a dark time. It may be a painful time. But He says, I will Bring honey from the rock that will satisfy. That it satisfies. You know, food is a, an affection for most all of us, isn't it? We just come through the holidays and we've eaten more food than we should and richer food than we should, all those kind of things. But uh, one thing I've noticed, uh, fruits and vegetables, fruits and vegetables, you know, we're into this preservative thing here in our country and we pick everything green you know it's just barely popped out on the leaves and we're ready to pick it and green and we store it and we make it you know we joke about this at home because you can buy a loaf of bread and put it on the cabinet at home and you know and two months it's still sitting there just like it was the first day you bought it it hasn't changed whatsoever now, if you make bread at home, you know, after about three days, it starts molding. No preservatives. When you taste that bread that you bought at the store, you know, it's kind of got a cardboard quality to it, doesn't it? It's kind of got a paper quality to it. it. It's not awful, but it's not great. But, but listen, when my wife makes that homemade bread, homemade bread, it comes out of that little oven and you put a little butter on that, or a lot of butter, and put that in your mouth, man, is that satisfying or what? You eat those store-bought vegetables and fruits, and you eat them, and you go, yeah, okay, it's probably nutritious, and it's, it's okay. It's just okay. But you go somewhere where they're picking it straight off the vine or the tree, and you eat one of those, and you go, Wow, I forgot what that was supposed to taste like. I forgot what a banana really tastes like. God says, look, you can knock yourselves out <laughs> chasing after everything in this world. And it may be okay for you. But listen, I'm the one that supplies what you need. And I bring honey from the rock that is satisfying, totally and completely. It's going to satisfy you beyond anything this world can offer. Open wide your mouths. Open wide. And I will fill it 
I will feel it. Most of us not opening our mouths wide to God because we've got them clenched so tightly trying to make it through this world. God says He's got much more to provide than we can ever imagine. I pray this year, not for tribulation or suffering or for darkness or for pain, though sometimes that's how God teaches us, but I pray that you get honey from the rock this year. That God shows you how to trust and obey Him. That you will open your mouth wide and know God's filling like you've never known before. I pray that you become acquainted in a very personal way with the sweetness of Christ and know complete satisfaction through Him. Father, we thank You and bless You for Your promises to us, for Your Word, for how You work for us, Lord, how You work in us, how You work through us. Lord, we pray that we might be faithful reflections of your glory in this world that they will see us leaning into you depending upon you trusting you being nourished and satisfied by you and that they might lord see it as salt and light that creates a thirst a desire to know the one that we know Lord, may our lives be satisfying each day because we know that you're providing for us and that you're guiding us and you're directing us. And may we learn to just listen and obey, just trusting you and appreciating you and all that you give because you are benevolent, kind, generous, faithful. You're a covenant God. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for all your promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.